Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. To get the extra five and become members of the BTL crew, go to patreon.com slash before the lights. That's patreon.com slash before the lights. Joining us today is the founder and chief wine officer for Psalm Select. He served as the U.S. ambassador for Krug Champagne of France and one of just over 200 master sommeliers in the world. He was named best young sommelier in the world under 35 years old and was featured in the wine documentary called Psalm. Please welcome to the show, Ian Cobble. Ian, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I am excited to talk to you. I, I love wine. I, I wouldn't say I'm a wine snob. I guess people may say I am, but I know I have listeners that are definitely <laughs> wine enthusiasts. So this is going to be fun. Bef- well, you know, I'm excited. Before we get into the whole wine thing, and we'll get there, grew up in Huntington Beach, California, attended Marina High School. Yeah. Father was a chiropractor. Was yeah. your father's career something you thought about following in his footsteps at first? I did, you know, I went to Sonoma state, my sisters went that went there. So I grew up, you know, pretty much on the tennis court or with the surfboard in my hand. And, uh, I grew up right in Huntington Harbor, right next to Bolsa Chica beach. So I was always surfing or playing tennis. And then my sisters went to Sonoma state and I went up there and I remember just like tasting the food at the local farmer's market. And I was like blown away at the culture, the beauty Sonoma County is this incredible place. And so I went up there and I followed my sisters because I'm really close with my family, ended up uh, trying to become doing pre-med. And then I realized I did not like chemistry, did not like physics, you know, and the whole you know world of chiropractic was a little bit more challenging at the time because of certain developments with insurance. And my dad said, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not the best um, avenue for your future right now, but, you know, it's still going to be there if you want it. And then I started learning about wine and I totally shifted my whole understanding because I got bit by the wine bug. And I think anybody listening and knows that the first time you have that like aha moment food and wine experience, whether that be a really good glass of Sauvignon Blanc with goat cheese and a tomato with really good sea salt and olive oil in your mind blows up and you're like, this is all I want to do. I just want to live through my palate and my nose and be around my favorite people in the world and eat and drink and be merry. And and then, so I just followed the path of learning about wine and business. And so I ended up, you know, getting a degree in Spanish and wine business. And uh, that's, that's a fraction of the story, but uh, that's kind of the beginning. You have a passion for obviously travel, food, wine, and I also understand music. What, yeah. what type of genres of music does Ian you know, enjoy? I love everything. I really, you know, I grew up listening to, you know, Bob Marley, Nirvana, the Beatles, uh, Pearl Jam. But, you know, I listened, I listened to the whole world. I love, you know, I love Spotify. My Spotify, you know, $7.99 a month gets its use. But I'm always looking to explore a lot of Scandinavian music whatever's going on, but I do have a, a soft spot in my heart for some really good classic reggae, um, Grateful Dead, you know, a lot of the classics. Uh, but, uh, you know, as long as I'm, it's, as long as it sounds good, it's not like, you know, I like good, great jazz. Um, but other than that, you know, music and wine, people, food, it's all a part of the yeah. symphony of life that, that I want from six to nine every, every day. Yeah. It definitely <laughs> all ties together. The whole music thing. You talked about just a minute ago, how close you are with your family. Talk about the importance of the support from your family to get you through where you're at today. 
You know, I think, you know, while you're going through life and just knowing that you have a support system, it just makes you feel more confident. I, my, my dad was a successful chiropractor. So I always had, you know, food in the refrigerator. My, I always pretty much, I, I was very lucky, right? I was, I was very lucky to have family that just provided for me what I needed. And, um, I basically, no matter where I was in my life, you know, you know, we can talk about my travels in Europe and I came home broke and borrowed a hundred dollars from my dad to buy a Calvin Klein suit, walked in the wine merchant of Beverly Hills. We could talk about yeah, that I later, got that but, coming. you know, just being able to know, you know, that I came home, you know, with zero dollars and <laughs> having a dad who can lend me a hundred bucks. That's a, that's support, you know? Yep. <laughs> and so, uh, and not everybody has that blessing in life. And I definitely, you know, don't go a day without realizing how lucky I've been to have, you know, a healthy, happy family that's very supportive and, you know, loving uh, and just supporting each other. I think that's a huge thing in life. And, and I don't take it for granted for sure. What's your first memory of wine? Man, my first memory of wine. You know what? I'm going to tell you the truth. And it was drinking too much Carlo Rossi <laughs> in high school out of solo red solo cups <laughs> and we drink way too much and we were at my buddy's house and it was, you know, I'm not going to get into the gory details, but sure. it wasn't so pretty in the morning. Um, but we drank literally, we had jug wines of Carlo Rossi. That's honestly my first, I haven't never thought that that's actually my first memory of like real wine because my early memories that I don't remember that I'd told my dad would give me tastes of like old vintages of Mouton Rothschild, uh, from Bordeaux. It's the first growth. And, uh, but I don't remember that. But in terms of like, if you asked me point blank, what my first memory was drinking jug wines of Carlo Rossi in high school out of red solo cups. Um, it's not exactly like something I want to brag about, but it's just the truth. And I think yeah. sometimes you just got to say it. I remember those jugs of Carlo Rossi myself. <laughs> you know, it wasn't so good, but uh, you were just learning about the world. You know, you're yeah. 15 or 16 and uh you're, you're testing things out. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, my palate has grown a little bit since then. <laughs> You've been to Morocco, India, Monaco, Austria, but you worked at an Australian pub in London. How did you know all about this? This is great. I do some research on my guests. It's amazing. So I, uh, so I'll give you the gist of what happened. So I graduated at Sonoma State. I had a bunch of money saved from teaching tennis. And so I basically took off and I got a job working for $2 an hour in Portugal. Right. So I'm, I'm, we're living in this town called uh, Favaios next to Pinhao in the North uh, kind of East of Portugal in the Dora Valley. And I spent three months there. And then I went to Madrid, you know, kind of for an ATP uh, tennis tournament that I wanted to watch Federer, Nadal, all the great guys of the world. So I ended up in Madrid, living in Madrid for a month. And then this house I was living in and I was teaching tennis to these kids on, on uh, clay court, trying to perfect my Castilian Spanish and uh, which is, it's different. Like just cause you get a degree in Spanish doesn't mean you can really get along with the high classic Spanish of the world. So I really wanted to perfect my Spanish. So I did that. And then one day I woke up and I didn't have a place to stay because this house I was renting fell through and I opened up the lonely planet. And I realized that I could be in Morocco in 24 hours. If I went to this train station and this, or this bus station that was 20 minutes away. So I literally jumped on a bus sat next to this kid from Venice, California named Sam, who's incredible. We're, we're buddies to this day, but I sit next to him and we basically spent 12 hours driving through Spain, got on a, on a, on a boat where the bus parked. And then we ended up, didn't realize in Morocco during Ramadan, right. 
So we're, you know, people aren't eating during the day, the Muslim culture. I'm like, I grew up in Orange County, right? Like <laughs> right. Pretty much with a surfboard. And the next thing you know, I'm like, people are, you know, chanting to their gods in the middle of the day, they're praying. And it was a super intense cultural experience. So I ended up spending a few months in Morocco, living on the beaches of Essaouira, going to Katama and the Chef Shawan and the Rift Mountains and exploring the uh, the culture there, which I won't go too much into, but it's very unique. If you just type in Katama, you'll see what they do there. Um, uh, but other than that, I ended up meeting these two guys that drove me then to Germany and lived in this little town called Reina, um, southeast of Amsterdam for a few weeks. And then I ended up uh, my trip, my goal was to get to St. Anton of Marlberg for the ski season. So I was a snowboarder and I was talking to my dad when I was in Morocco and I was like, Hey, I don't know what I'm going to do this winter. He's like, you should just go to Austria, go to this mountain and life's going to take care of itself. So I got a ski season pass, ended up in St. Anton for four months and had like waist deep powder every day for literally like 80 days. And, uh, and then, so I ran out of money pretty shortly thereafter. And, uh, wasn't the plan. I didn't realize it because uh, I wasn't really looking at my funds very accurately because it was like 1.6, you know, euros to the dollar kind of thing. Right. So your money's, you're losing 50% on it right. every time you spend a dollar. And uh, I've learned more about accounting since then. Uh, <laughs> but I, uh, so I ended up in Monaco trying to get a job as like a tennis teacher on a yacht or like a, like an assistant chef. And then ended up, you know, coming in touch, coming in contact with these Northern Algerian, like gangsters who tried to like jump me and my friends one day and we ended up having to jump this fence with spikes <laughs> on it and I cut my hands but it turns out that the guy who kind of started it all uh, his dad was a billionaire from Australia and so I ended up living in this penthouse for six weeks while my hands healed and uh, such a crazy story I can't it's... believe I'm telling you but uh and so I ended up healing my hands and then uh, ended up moving in with this girl I met from Norway and I lived in London for four or five months while I saved money to, to go to India. So I ended up in India by myself, met these incredible people at the airport, traveled through Northern India, Parbati Valley, Manali, Goa, Kerala, Almora, and then uh, just incredible. And then uh, I have goosebumps thinking about it. Uh, but then I came back and uh, of course was out of money and I knew I wanted to get a job in the wine business. And my dad uh, said, you need to go to the wine merchant of Beverly Hills and I was like, I need a suit. And he was like, all right, you know, Macy's has a sale. And I went, I think it was actually $139 suit on sale. And I just, you know, my dad taught me kind of how to tie the tie because I wasn't, now I love ties, right? Right. But uh, I was 24 and uh, my dad's teaching me how to tie a double Windsor. And I walked in the wine merch and they're like, you know, we'll give you a job, 14 bucks an hour. It's like, sounds great. And then uh, spent the next two years drinking the greatest wines in the world, having actors, actresses, producers, directors coming in and, and uh, asking my opinion and inviting me to their houses. And they wanted to spend money and drink wine with people who had passion. So I learned through tasting and studying. And at a certain point, I learned about what a master sommelier was. And I was like, God, this is what I'm doing. I'm opening wine for people. I'm teaching them about it. I'm reading books. And then I learned about the quartermaster sommeliers. And I basically ended up passing my certified exam in 2006 and my, the intro and certified, and then uh, just followed the path. And I was just super inspired by the knowledge and the professionalism of the master sommeliers that were teaching me. And I just wanted to be like them. I wanted to be somebody that knew 
everything about the greatest things in the world. And for me, that's food and wine. And it ties in, of course, music and culture and travel. Mm-hmm. And that's thankfully what I get to do with my life. I travel, I learn, and I cook, I eat, I drink, I spend time with amazing people who want to share those experiences. And thankfully, Psalm Select was uh, launched shortly after, you know, so I ended up, you know, taking my advanced exam, which is the third level for the court in 2008. I failed and watched a bunch of my friends pass and it was really depressing. And I realized I wasn't prepared. Right. And I was living in Vegas. I was working under a bunch of masters, but I hadn't put the time in, I didn't put the work in and I showed up and I saw how prepared other people were that, you know, I saw their flashcards and the information they were studying. I was like, God, I'm like an amateur showing up to a professional golf tournament. And I can't even, you know, right out the sand. Right. Uh, so I ended up, uh, studying my tail off for the next year. And I came back and I got the red scholarship the next year, which is the top score. And, uh, and then I got an early invite to the master's exam, which I wasn't expecting, but Fred game called me and said, Hey, you know, you got the top score. Um, and I want to invite you in three in a month to take the master's exam. And this was like four months after I passed, there's people that dropped out of the master's test. And I was like, I don't want to take this test in three weeks. I need two years to study for this. And he's like, no, we think you're ready to take it. And I was like, I don't want to do it. He's like, Ian, if you don't accept this invitation, I'm never going to forgive you. And I said, I'll be there. (laughs) And that was Fred Dame. Fred Dame, he's like the godfather of the court. If you see like Psalm three, for example, uh, he's there. And, you know, I went in there with nothing to lose and I passed one of the three portions. Um, but long story short, that's right when the Psalm documentary started being filmed. So, you know, they, the Jason Wise from the Psalm movie called me, like he found out I got an invitation. He's like, I want to follow you with the camera. And I was like, already nauseous thinking about showing up to a test and to be the first person that's followed into it with a camera documenting it was not really right. an exciting thought. Like, but I was like, all right, He's like, it's going to be okay. We have approval. And we showed up to the test and it turns out like half of the people didn't know what was going on. So it was a very awkward situation. Uh, but <laughs> Sorry to ramble on. That trip through all those different countries, that should be a documentary in itself on the whole you know, path. Yeah, I, I, it should be written down. I mean, if, if you, if, if I got into some of even the mini stories within those mini stories, like <laughs> that 16 months over in Europe was, was one for the record books. And it definitely, uh, it definitely added character, you know, to, to, my, to me. And, you know, it's, uh, it's been an incredible thing to look back on how special that was that, you know, teaching tennis and other entrepreneurial activities in college allowed me to have the means to travel. And uh, traveling is such an important thing. And, uh, and for me, that's, that's what life's about. It's getting out, getting out of your comfort zones and smelling these smells in, you know, old Delhi or the mountains of India or Morocco. It's like, it's such a different experience than being in America where everything's a little bit more, you know, vanilla and typical and the, the streets are not, you know, lined with cows causing traffic jams kind of thing. And you, you go through it, you really, you come home and you realize, really what a special place we do get to live in. And, you know, America is quite mm-hmm. amazing when you actually look at what we we have here. Let me back up just a little bit. Was your aha moment when you took a wine trip to Chile? It was, that was, you know, the first time I really saw the incredible culture of food and wine. Of course I was tasting great wines in Napa and Sonoma. I had some friends that were working as, kind of servers for different catering companies when I was in college, they would bring back really special bottles of Cabernet that were left over from an event at 
Frog's Leap, for example. But right before my senior year, I realized that I'd need credits for Spanish and my business degree. And you had these elective credits you need to do. So I, I could sign up for this trip to Chile and do a month in Chile and get like a half a semester worth of work done to eat and drink and travel through wineries for a month. So it seemed like a good plan. So I ended up for this 14 day, uh, you know, kind of intensive, you know, wine trip. And then I spent another couple of weeks there by myself. Um, but sitting on the beaches of Vina del Mar outside of Santiago and having like seafood soup with a chilled glass of Sauvignon Blanc at the sunset and the vineyards. And it's, that was kind of the moment when I was like, all right, I wonder how I can organize my life to be able to do more of this. That was pretty much the thought. And I, and I realized that the more I learned about wine and the more I could, you know, be able to speak about wine, the more that this would be a part of my lifestyle. So, you know, Chile um, has some incredible wines. My favorite wines in the world are from Europe, from France, but uh, I do have a soft spot in my heart for Chilean wines in particular, old wine, Carmenere, a lot of great Sauvignon Blancs from the coast. But uh, Chile is a very special place. I'm going to sprinkle in a few questions about wine as we go. And I'm going to do a couple here. When you're pouring wine, is how much should somebody pour out to have a glass? Five ounces is the five typical. Ounces. So five ounces, it's kind of like, imagine if you start pouring slowly, you're pouring about an ounce per second. And so if you look at the actual glass, you don't want to pour above the curve. Okay. So imagine the curve, it's a circle, right? You don't want above, like imagine a burgundy stem. It's a big bowl. Mm -hmm. You don't want to pour more than the halfway point. And that's in a burgundy stem, that's probably seven ounces. So it's a little bit below the curve curve, but you know, if you pour above that and you like, say you have like a, a small, you know, all purpose wine stem and you pour it to the top, we call that a country club pour. So, you know, when somebody holds out the glass, yeah, pour it to the top, honey. Right. <laughs> and you get the glass of Chardonnay and it's like poured literally. And there's like a half inch left at the top. That's what we, we joke is a country club pour, but you can't smell the wine if you pour it to the top, right? There's, 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 or organic compounds and esters and all of these things that are in the liquid, right? And when you swirl the glass, you want it to be about a third full so you can properly swirl the glass and it volatizes the aromas from liquid into gas. And the gas um, is these molecules that is the fermentation of grapes that hits those molecules hit your olfactory bulb and they send messages of smell to your brain. So mostly what you smell and what you taste is the same, but in terms of what you're tasting, you don't really taste through your palate. You only have sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and then umami on the palate. So your palate doesn't taste anywhere close to the complex hundreds of aromas that you're, when you're actually tasting a wine, the aromas are going back through your throat into your olfactory bulb. And that's where you actually are getting your taste. So, uh, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of incredible flavors that you can have in wine. Some of them are very bad. Some of them are very good. It depends on how they were made. If there were sulfur used, it's, if it's a non-sulfured wine that was, that was heated up, it can smell like Chewbacca made it, you know, like, uh, like Chewbacca from Star Wars. Like imagine if you fell in the fermenter while it was being made, sometimes wines can smell like animals. Sometimes they can smell like strawberry dreams. It, sometimes they can smell like olive and black pepper and meat and cold blueberries like Northern Rhone, which is one of my favorites, like the great wines of Hermitage and Cote Roti, you know, very good Burgundy, for example, like Mucini, Bonemar, Romani Conti, they can smell literally like a magical forest and you're picking these like fresh small blueberries and, and strawberries and there's this forest floor and 
wet leaves and uh, compost and mushrooms and like this kind of like, you know, damp tree bark and like these amazing complex aromas that like, it just excites you so much. Just like listening to the most beautiful, you know, Mozart, right. There's something special about that, but the same symphony can happen in terms of your olfactory bulb and your sense of smell is incredible. Just like our sense of sight is incredible. Our sense of hearing, right. These are all unique ways that we experience the world. And for me, the nose and, you know, it's just, you know, also a little bit of alcohol in the bloodstream definitely elevates the mood sometimes. So all of these things together, of course, uh, tie back to, uh, the country club pour is not ideal. So that was (laughs) my point. (laughs) Does the type of glass make a difference to the wine? Yes. Big time. Uh, there's a company called Riedel. Um, it's not Rydell. So Rydell makes football helmets. Riedel makes glasses and they have these, these kind of seminars. So, and they show you like, imagine you went to a wedding in 1987 at a Marriott, right. And that big thick glass that's angled and you can't smell anything out of, they've evolved the glasses to be thinner, larger with more space between the liquid, allowing the volatilization of the molecules to be able to be in their ideal form. And also the way that the actual glass delivers um, the liquid to your tongue on the right spot. So glasses are very important. Um, the, the best glass in the world is Zalto, Z-A-L-T-O. They're about 50 to $60 a stem. Uh, the Zalto all-purpose stem will change your complete perception of, of wine. Just like when you get a really good speaker system, right? And everyone has their friend that invested in a crazy speaker system at their house and you play an album you've always loved. And if you play that album on a Walkman from 1990 or a speaker, that's an incredible system, the same CD or the same tape will be a completely different experience. The same thing with glasses, right? If you have a really good glass in a really bad wine, that bad wine is going to taste even worse out of the good glass, right? But if you have a great wine out of a great glass, it's like putting that, that old Beatles album on the most incredible sound. And it just, you know, it, it hits the soul a little bit differently. So glasses are, are big. And so is service temperature. Uh, those are the two most important things. Wine quality first, but also service temperature and glassware. Okay. So before you give out temperature, the stemless craze of glasses going in then is not a typical good glass to drink wine out of. The stemless glass, I don't mind. Like if you have a large enough stemless, stemless glass, the only problem with stemless glass is you have to hold it and your, your body's 98 degrees and your wine should be 60 or 65 degrees for a red wine. So you're constantly warming up your glass. So if you're sitting there, you know, and you're eating the bruschetta, you have a glass of Italian white wine that's in your hand. Not only is your, you know, olive oil fingerprints all over the stem, uh, but you're warming up your glass. So for me, that's why a stem is good. But listen, I have a, I have a little airstream we take out to the coast and I have stemless glasses in it because they store well. And I'm at the beach looking at the sunset with stemless glass and life's okay. (laughs) But if I'm at a restaurant, I want a stem. Um, uh, These are all first world problems, you know, like not having a stem on your glass. So these are the particularities that don't really matter too much, but if we're going to get into the details, stem, good, good glass or with a nice stem, um, because the stem doesn't translate the heat to the glass and allows you to kind of keep your glass somewhat clean. Um, so that's why I tell people when I teach wine, don't hold the glass by the bowl. Your, all of your fingerprints end up making the glass totally dirty, like a dirty windshield after a road trip. You want to keep your glass looking clean. It's just a part of the enjoyment of it for me. What's the good temperature then for white and red? So it depends. Um, 
if you're talking about a really inexpensive white, serve it at 35 degrees. I'm just kidding. Like the colder, the better if it's a really cheap wine because it kind of locks in the aroma, which is not always so pleasing. But the really best white wines of the world should be served around 50 to 55 degrees. Okay. And with that, I'm talking about really great Burgundy, great Chardonnay. But for the most part, if you have wine at refrigerator temperature, which is around 38 to 42 degrees, take it out about 15 minutes before service and pop the cork, right? And that's usually perfect temp for Champagne, Chablis, Gruner Veltliner, Albarino, even California Chardonnay. Um, that's really buttery. I like it a little colder because it kind of holds the, the acidity seems to be a little warmer. Um, but the really great Chardonnays of the world coming from like Poligny Montrachet, Merceau, Chassagne Montrachet, serve those at roughly cellar temperature, which is around 55 degrees because you don't, you want all of those incredible aromas that you spent $150 on this bottle. You want, you know, you want all of those aromas. You don't want to bleep the comedian. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you want to basically make sure that you're giving uh, your nose the chance to absorb every single piece of this, this, this being of this wine in front of you, because sometimes they're just magical. So if you have a wine that's at 38 degrees or 60 degrees for a white, one of them is going to give you a hundred percent of the aromas. One of them is it's going to smell like cold liquid, right. With a little lemon. And so temperature and the chemistry involved with, you know, why molecules volatize from liquid into gas, they are, uh, there's just a lot that goes into it. Um, with that said for reds, I think most people drink white wines too cold and red wines too warm. Um, red wines should not be served at room temperature, room temperature, depending on where you are. If you're in a Kentucky, uh, you know, RV with no air conditioning in the summer, it's 90 degrees in your room. If you're near Castle in February in Edinburgh, it's 49 degrees, right? What's the temperature of your room? Average room temperature is 72, but I'd say most red wine should be served around 60 to 65, 68. Okay. Um, and uh, it's 65 degrees. I don't know if you've been in the ocean when it's 65, 65 is cold. Yeah. Because most, a lot of red wines have a lot of alcohol. So the warmer you serve them, the more the wine's going to smell like alcohol because the warmer the temperature is, the volatization of the alcohol is hitting your nose. So instead of smelling these beautiful molecules of strawberries and, you know, these delicate mushrooms, you're smelling alcohol and it's completely like, you know, somebody's putting on nail, you know, like somebody's taking off their nail, uh, like my wife's tailing, taking off their nail, uh, polish. Uh, uh, nail polish off. Yeah. It's, it's that's sometimes, these ripe California wines can smell like that if they're served too warm. But if you have the same wine and it's 70, say it's 75 degrees in your house, right? And you take that same wine, you put it in the freezer for 15 minutes and gets it down to 55. You put it in a canner, comes up to 60 degrees and you pour it. That same wine is a totally different experience. Just like hanging out with someone on the Las Vegas strip and it's 110, right? Versus you're sitting in an air conditioned restaurant, right? right? People have a different personality. Wine completely changes depending on the temperature you serve it, the glassware, the place, there's so many variables to wine enjoyment, but it, the basics are temperature, glassware, and good company. How many bottles of wine did you go through to become a master sommelier? <laughs> That's scary. Uh, my, I don't know. Let me ask my liver. Uh, I'm going to guess, I mean, geez. So from 2004, let me say it. 300. I'm going to guess at least 10,000 tastes. Wow. And three to three to 5,000 consumed bottles. I'm going to guess. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, over like that eight to nine years, I mean, you're drinking wine after work, 
tasting all day and spitting wine too. But I'm going to, I'm going to guess it's, you know, that 10,000 hour rule applies to wine too. It's like that 10,000 bottles probably. That's uh, a lot of wine. You know, that's the only way to master a subject. That's gotta, true. That is true. You, gotta, you have to taste the the good, the bad, the ugly. You have to understand why it's good, bad, and ugly and be able to, you know, share that with people who are passionate. Like it's a lot of people that are customers at some select. They look to us because they're a specialist and there might be a lawyer, a doctor. And, you know, if I have a problem and I have, you know, I have to go to the doctor, I expect them to be, you know, the specialist. But if people come to us and they want to drink well and they don't, you know, say you have $35 a bottle to spend, you can get amazing wines, but you have to know where to look. You know, you're not getting amazing Napa Cabernet for $35, but you can get really great Sicilian red for 35 or German Pinot or organ Pinot or Beaujolais, for example, Argentine Malbec. Um, uh, but that's, you know, that's why Psalm Select is a great resource for people is because, you know, this is what we do all day. We taste right. wines and I still taste 100 to 150 wines a week, um, which isn't that much. Um, because of COVID, we don't taste as much as we could because we're kind of not having kind of people come to the office and taste us on the wine. So we have about 50 to 150 samples delivered every week. And every Wednesday we taste through them. And, uh, and I also t- try to travel to Europe every year, but I kind of got put on hold because of mm-hmm. the current pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and uh, other than that, I'll tell you what, tasting, that's really my life. I taste wine and we find great wines. Uh, we really try to support people who are, respecting the vineyard and respecting the soil, respecting the environment, not spraying pesticides and herbicides and Roundup, you know, a lot of these carcinogenic things that we shouldn't be putting in our food, in my opinion. So a lot of our focus in Psalm Select is really making wines, um, you know, supporting farmers who are really treating the earth with respect and doing the work and not just doing the work by, you know, there's conventional farming where you can go through and drive a tractor and spray chemicals on the soil or you can bring compost naturally that was, you know, composted and give energy to the soil versus spraying laboratory products in the earth. So with that said, uh, we go, we go into a lot about farming and farming is a big part of, of great wine. I'm going to bring up something with the farming in a minute. We brought up Psalm select folks go to my show notes. I'm going to put a link to psalmselect.com. It's a free subscription website for knowledgeable and wine enthusiasts, exceptional wine delivered to you. GQ said it's one of the best wine subscriptions according to the In the Know Sommeliers and by New York Magazine, the best overall wine subscription. So you have a great product. You've talked about how you're really choosing the great wines to make sure you're getting the, the best wine to your customers. What's the difficulty then in shipping wine? Oh, geez. Uh, that's, you know, that's the challenge. Well, because, you know, wine is delicate, right? So just like you know, if you buy a, if you buy a hammer off of Amazon, right, you can ship that in 120 degree weather into the heart of Arizona in the middle of summer, and it's going to be no problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So with Psalm Select, you know, we do it. The the heart and soul was like the daily offer. You sign up for this daily email. We send it to you. We also have concierge. We have clubs. We have blind tasting kits. We have all these things, but to ship them during the heat involves, uh, it's challenging because you don't want the wine to get above, you know, say 80 to 85 degrees, right? Think about the water off Waikiki in summer is about 85 degrees. It doesn't feel hot, but it's warm. So any above that wine starts to degrade. So we have a, you know, continuation of cold shipping channels in the summer and it's expensive, you know, because they have to leave our dock. They have to go to a hub 
and then they have to leave in air conditioned trains to a certain hub. And then we open up the packages and put cold packs in it. And then it goes to another hub and hopefully gets delivered that day. But if you're not home to sign for the package, it goes back to an 84 degree hub in Miami. And, you know, not to say that a wine's going to go bad at 84, but it will at 92 or 95. So, um, the logistical challenges of getting a wine that's perishable to an individual is great eight months out of the year, but from, you know, May till I'd say June until October one, it's tough. That's why we have a summer hold program um, that if you buy something from us during the warm months, we just save it for you. I mean, all these wines are, you know, these are, these are like, it's like the stock market. They're getting better with time. Most of the wines that we sell are not the wines that taste great today. They're obviously, most of them are going to be about six months to 10 years drinkability. And we talk about that in our offer. You know, if you see our daily offer, we talk about the service temperature, the glassware, how long you decant it, we give you a recipe to pair it with. So we really give you that whole table side, quote unquote, experience that you would at a nice restaurant when the sommelier is presenting and teaching about the wine, but you also spend four, three to four times the price in a high-end New York City restaurant than a very fairly priced retail wine. That same wine is literally usually double to two to four times the cost. So um, with that said, there's there's so many challenges that starting Psalm Select, you know, you thought it was going to be one thing and it ends up being logistics. Logistics are not something that I want to do with my life. And luckily, luckily we have a lot of smart people that are helping us in terms of getting the wines, these really beautiful wines that are sitting here in this cold warehouse in Sonoma and going through all the necessary steps to get them safely to um, the customer and have that bottle be that incredible uh, symphony that, that we talk about. But one thing that gets in your way is heat. Which is um, me in Vegas. You know, I used to live there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like pulling up to the, you know, the Mandalay Bay 120 degree parking lot and right. sweating through your suit. And then you, you know, get into the air conditioning and you're freezing. You know, we've all been there. I used to work in Vegas for years. And uh, that was a place where I really learned the most about wine because there's so much gambling money that these, you know, the princes of Dubai would show up and have guests and they want to spend 30 grand on wine, but they would no, nobody would drink it. They'd just like smell it. And so they would leave these like 30 or 40,000 of wine, like on the table. Wow. Like, and like, I would have to call the local sommeliers be like, come help me drink all this 90, <laughs> 1990 Petrus and 82 and 95. And like Vegas is a totally different world, man. And uh, I don't know if I started talking about that, but Vegas changed my life because Vegas you know, allowed this, all this money came in, like, and people would want to spend absurd amounts of money to drink these artifacts of like 1929s and 28s and 49s and 55s. And you can't afford these, right? When you're, when you're making X dollars a year as a 26 year old, you know, you can, you know, you might have six grand in the bank, but that doesn't even cover a quarter of one of these bottles, right. That you're opening. Right. And so you're literally some nights I would have I would drink 20 or $25,000 of the wine and you're within a bottle and a half. And, you know, and it was like, though it's like, you're taking a bite of the Mona Lisa. And it was like, okay, that was interesting. <laughs> On that topic, then what is the most expensive bottle of wine you've tasted? Mm, uh, it's probably 1980. I think it was 1986 Henri Jaillet Crow Parent two out of Magnum. I think it's, 
it was around twenty five or thirty thousand dollars for a Magnum. But this is ten years ago. That same bottle is probably worth thirty five or forty thousand now. Um, but you know, but the worst part was we had like five bottles. So the first bottle we opened was great. It was a dinner with Thomas Keller from the French Laundry, myself. And about 20 people sat at this Pebble Beach house overlooking the ocean and sunset. And we were opening up Old Krug, Old Dom Perignon, back to 64. The 64 Dom Perignon Anotech, single greatest champagne I've ever tasted. The wine spent 50 years resting on lees with a crown cap, was disgorged, and it was like magical. Um, but the worst part was the next bottle was like 85, 86, 88, 89, and 90. We had magnums of Henri Jai Crow Parentu, which is like one of the most special wines in the world. But the second one was corked, right? And it was like a, you know, $30,000 to just flush it down the, <laughs> the, the, the sink. It's a little depressing, but, uh, you know, like I always say, first world problems. Yes, exactly. We're On the farmer part is, how does soil then dictate taste in a wine? So soil, so... First and foremost, most people wouldn't understand it, but the, the more poor the soil for growing anything, the better for grapes, right? So you want poor soil that's mineral. You don't want a lot of really rich soil because you want the, the grape to go deep into the earth and extract all these different minerals that make wines more complex. So, you know, the earth is very, you know, traditionally you have dirt, right? And you have an animal that might pass away. It might bring droppings that, you know, create compost and things break down and create soil. That's really what it comes down to. And if you remove any sort of chemical inputs, what you have is this normal degradation of, you know, plants and animals and everything that's going on in the world. And it becomes a part of the soil and there's microbes and fungus and bacteria in the soil that are essential for, you know, for example, rocks are in the soil. Fungus will actually leach onto the, to these rocks and start breaking down minerals while the actual root structure of the plant is giving off sugar off these little kind of hairs that come off. And the bacteria is coming and eating the sugar off of the grapevine's root system, right? It, it has fructose to the best of my understanding. So the bacteria eats it and creates oxygen. And that oxygenated environment on the root system allows for the uptake of these minerals that have been broken down by the fungus off of the rocks, right? There's a really cool documentary called Symphony of the Soil that anybody listening should watch. And it shows you like why the forest is just, you know, has all this incredible soil bustling with life. And these plants look so healthy is because that's the way nature evolved. You shouldn't have to take nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium from a laboratory and spray it into the soil. Mm. There's other ways of taking natural things and putting it into the soil. So if you're talking about burgundy, you know, burgundy is my passion. It's most people who have um, a wine cellar and they've been in wine for 20 years. People want to drink burgundy. So over time, uh, you know, this exists, this area existed underneath the shallow ocean for 180 million years. So the polar ice caps used to be smaller and the, the actual levels of the ocean was much higher covering most of France. A lot of the coastal areas of the world were existing underneath a shallow sea of like 100, 150 feet. So during this 180 million years, you had sea life, you know, lobsters and crabs and whatever that might be, sea urchins, they break down and compress and that calcium uh, and all of these things kind of compress and created a lot of limestone, right? And then there's geological evolution, tectonic plate shift, creating really compressed limestone over a lot of France. So a lot of the best wines are grown on limestone. And then there's different clay 
influences creating one of the most complex areas of the world for in terms of geology, geology. And then you take these vineyards, which might be the size of your house or the size of a neighborhood, like a small neighborhood with maybe 15 or 20 houses. And each vineyard has different soil type based on the geological history. So you have each village like Jevre Chambertin, Moray Sintini, Chambol Musini, Flagey Eshazo, Bone Romane, Bone. Each one of these, the wines, you can put your nose in the glass and they smell completely like that village because of the geology and what's going on in the soil. But within that village, say Jevre Chambertin, there are certain producers who are using chemical influences like Roundup and Mm. different chemical things. And those wines literally smell and taste somewhat dead, like C grade. And then you have their next door neighbor who's bringing in these natural, you know, teas that they're making and biodynamic preparations because you're bringing in cultivating all these bacteria and microbes and they're spraying it into the soil. And you're basically creating this life force in the soil that allows for the happiness of the root system of the plant. And I would add to that, that most people don't know that's illegal to water a vine in France. It's against the law to water a vine. So you can water the vine very young, just like you can give your kid, you know, $2 a day for lunch money. Right. right? But eventually you, you want that kid to leave and get his own job. Right. And you, if you're giving your kid $50 a day, he's going to be living in your basin when he's 35, the same thing with grapevines that you want to give them a little bit of water to get started, but then you want the grapevine to struggle. What happens is, the struggle of the grapevine causes the grapevine to go deep into the soil, going down a hundred feet over 80 to hundred years. These roots go down 10 story building equivalent into wow. the earth to get water and minerals. And these vines sometimes will make one bottle. So you have one vine that is going into this incredible geological history in a village like Maury St. Denis in Burgundy. And you have these old hundred year old vines making one bottle and you put your nose in the glass and it's literally like the hair on your arm stands up and you're just like, it's like the first time you listened to the best song you've ever heard, but it was your nose, you know, and there's like 77 different aromas going on. And then you take a sip and the texture and the sweetness of the strawberries and the wild huckleberries and that delicate mushroom influence and all these, these umami delicate things going on are just, this is, this is literally like, you know, chasing the dragon, you know, with Burgundy, you know, that it's these people that, you know, you might not have much money in the bank, but you don't care because you're going to spend all your money on Burgundy because it brings you so much pleasure. That's the difficulty when you really fall in love with wine, Mm -hmm. you're going to just, you just get into this trap where that's all you really want is to like drink these great wines and understand why it tastes like that. And then you're, you know, you get together with 10 people, everyone drinks, brings a nice bottle of Burgundy from their cellar because they want to share it. And you just have these incredible conversations and you learn about like, what are all these details that really make this wine what it is? And it started 200 million years ago. It's like incredible. (laughs) Do you ever get like burnout on wine? Yeah, I do sometimes. I'll be honest. Yeah. Like, you know, because it's, 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 it's my job, but it's my passion you know, and, you know, I love my kids too, but sometimes I get burnout on, you know, hearing them cry, <laughs> you know, everything <laughs> too much of anything you get burnt out. But, you know, I do like to drink, uh, you know, mezcal is kind of a new passion of mine, like really good mezcal from Oaxaca. There's different cactuses or different, sorry, agave plants that, um, that make incredible experiences. So I just got back from Mexico last week and uh, a lot of great cocktails from mezcal. It's kind of a way to mix it up. Um, 
been drinking hard kombucha um, to mix it up a little bit. Um, but I do love wine, of course. I love drinking Gruner Veltliner from Austria, dry Riesling, uh, white Burgundy. That's kind of my go-to. If I go, you know, to Mexico, for example, I went for 10 days and I came back and I missed wine, but you know, it was humid and it was hot. And so I brought like five bottles. We didn't open anything. So I ended up giving them away to some local people down there who were like from France and Italy. And I like, you know, popped the cork. I took a taste and I poured it around the pool and people were drinking like super rare Northern run Syrah, you know, by the pool side at sunset (laughs) and they didn't expect it. That some old off dry Rieslings and, and uh, it's pretty cool to be able to share those kind of things. But uh, with that said, I do sometimes get sick of wine, uh, but that's, you know, 3% of the time, most of the time, you know, I do want to drink wine, but sometimes I need a little break. Yep. How big is your wine, personal wine collection at home? Not that big, you know, cause I, I live in Napa um, and I don't have like a proper seller. I have a few like um, refrigerator wine refrigerators that hold 350 bottles. So, you know, at the warehouse at some select uh, we have, I don't know, 30,000 bottles right now, probably. Uh, but at home, I don't want to keep too much wine. I have a closet that doesn't get above like 72 or 75, even more out of town. Um, but I'm at a point that I don't quite have the space to really start a seller. That's probably going to be um, knock on wood. Hopefully, hopefully one day I have a, a seller, but it's not, it's not in the cards currently. I'm still, still working on it. We have a, you know, we have a, we have a, a business to focus on and right. um, that's my focus right now. And if I need a bottle, I can drive 16 minutes and, uh, and pull something from the warehouse. So it's, uh, I'd rather keep the wines at 65 degrees or 60 to 58 degrees. And, uh, eventually one day I'll have a seller. How can listeners follow you or where are you at on social media? What platforms? So I'm on Facebook, uh, Ian Cobble. You can look me up. Uh, and I'm on Instagram at Ian Cobble, I A N C A U B L E. I don't post that much, but you can follow us on Psalm select. We're posting more often, but it's one thing I should probably do more is a little bit more Instagram. Uh, but you know, I'm so busy. It's hard to like sit down and, mm-hmm. you know, post something, you know, it, there's a lot of exciting things to post. I just, I just maybe need to focus on it more. Uh, I'll put that. a link so, to Psalm selects IG page, uh, on the yeah. show notes as well. So listeners, you can go there and I would highly suggest you also look at the link to go to psalmselect.com as well. People, they say like the average bottle of wine that people purchase is like less than $12 or $10. Is there a tip for listeners that go, okay, maybe I'll splurge and buy a 50 or $100 bottle of wine. Is there a tip for them to go, I'm going to get a good wine for this price? Yeah. Um, you know, it really depends on what you're looking for. But if you're looking to spend 50 to to $100, I think first and foremost, you should go to a retailer that you trust that has a good selection mm. that, that's kissed the frog so you don't have to. And I think uh, don't always bet on points. You know, the higher the points, typically the richer and sweeter the wine and the more oak. So it depends on the palate. If you find a Napa Valley Cabernet with 91 points, you might like that more than 98 point wine because the 98 point wine is most likely richer, later harvested, sweeter fruit. And it depends on your palate. So I think, you know, just find a retailer that you trust and find someone that, you know, have your local internet wine shop, uh, sorry, local, uh, you know, wine shop that you can walk into in person and find somebody you trust or you can go onto you know, a credible website and find these wines at a price point and learn about them. 
And uh, the cool part is, you know, we do have a concierge uh, service at Som Select. So anybody who's looking to really invest and understand wine, we have people that will call you and walk you through this process. So um, you can just email info at somselect.com and we'll put you in touch with the right person. And if you have, you know, $150 to spend on a gift, we can walk you through exactly what it is, send you a recipe t- to recommend to your friend to have with that old Bordeaux or Brunello de Montalcino or old Rioja. And um, I think, you know, just, you just need to have a good advisor that to help you make the right choices. Just like if you're going to make a bet on a horse, you know, go talk to the jockey down the, the, the way and say, Hey, what, where should I put my money? Like, you know, and there's tens of thousands of options at a hundred dollars a bottle, right? What are you going to bet on? And what's the likelihood that brings you pleasure? You don't know. Uh, it all depends on what you like, what you've liked historically. And, um, and you just have to be able to make a good bet with your money because you worked hard for it. Today's show is brought to you by Aroma Retail. Scent your space. You're going to love the way your home smells. Low cost, simple, and easy to set up and use with no contracts. Scent your space in less than a week with over 80 fragrances and the fall season upon us. You can get scents such as the Great Pumpkin, Trick or Treat, how about Warm Bread, or even a Zen Temple. Go to the show notes and click on the link and use the code LIGHTS10 for 10% off of your order or go to beforethelightspod.com slash sponsors and click on the Aroma Retail logo. But please use the link. It lets them know that I sent you and use the code LIGHTS10. Ian, I think we could do a show for about five hours on wine and you're and I was you're, like what do you mean we're over already i was having so much fun yep. and, and your stories I mean, i'm telling you that's got to be a documentary but thanks for uh taking some time out of your day and being on before the lights it's a pleasure man listen reach out if you're ever in napa uh we got to hang out and uh, we got to yeah. share some good balls together i had a lot of fun today yeah for sure people if you would follow the podcast you can find it anywhere podcast platforms are found spotify iheart stitcher iTunes. It's anywhere. Please follow the show. Follow us on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin.